to the Huntley Baptist Church podcast. We hope that this message can be an encouragement to you today. Please feel free to contact us at huntleybaptist@extra.co.nz or visit us at huntleybaptist.com. Good morning, church. How are we all? Good, good. <laughs> hey, it's a new month already. And we're going to uh, start on a new series today. So the, st- the series is Jonah. That's supposed to be a big fish. <laughs> the Bible doesn't say whale, it just says fish. So it could have been a giant, whatever that is, goldfish. <laughs> so we're, we've, we're going into Jonah because it's a continuation of a theme of missions. So we're going to do a, one chapter per week. So four chapters in Jonah, one chapter per week. And I would encourage you that you read along with, uh, with the messages because the chapters are quite short and it's, it's really in-depth. There's so many layers. It's rich. So, yeah, really pray that we, we get something out of it because it's a, it's a great book. And we're going to unpack the first chapter today. So first, a bit of a disclaimer when we talk about books like this. So the book of Jonah is probably one of the most well-known stories in the Bible. In fact, if you were to rock up to someone on the street and ask them about a man being swallowed by a giant goldfish or a whale, they'd probably be able to associate that with Jonah and with the Bible. It's been adapted into movies, animations of vegetables that talk, and uh, children's books, and even a musical, which I, hadn't, I didn't realise. So there on the end, there is a musical of Jonah, or there was. But I think... When it starts to become um, like that, when it starts to become secularised and popular, it, it almost becomes something quite fantasiful. Does that make sense? Uh, it's, the tendency can occur to, to associate it with something that's fantasy. And I'll admit, for me, it's been a little bit hard in the past to associate uh, the book of Jonah with anything but like a colourful illustration, a parable that serves as a, as a backdrop for some kind of spiritual lesson. But when I first started doing research for this topic, naturally my curiosity led me straight away, has there been anyone else that's been swallowed by a giant fish and survived? And I did find a few stories. Uh, There was this man, his name was Charlie in the early 1900s. He was on a rowboat up the front and he was trying to harpoon a giant shark. And he accidentally fell in, lost his balance, got swallowed in one bite according to reports. And um, I didn't have a photo, sorry, it was 1900s, early 1900s. (laughs) <laughs> Just picture that, a lot scarier, uh, swallowed by a giant shark. Now, two days later, his, his crew, they caught this shark, and they hoisted it up, they cut it open, and apparently there was Charlie inside, still alive. So they pulled him out, and apparently he lived for many years after that, but his skin was completely discoloured, and he, his hair never grew back. Um, the shark's digestive juices apparently and there was also this man his name was Michael Packard and he was diving for lobster uh, off Cape Cod in the States uh, in 2021 where he was swallowed by a humpback whale um, only to be spat out soon afterwards so all these stories there's there's others all these stories they have their critics they have their unbelievers but I I suppose most stories that are fantastic do Um, and then there's the there's the city of Nineveh itself so which God commanded Jonah to go to. And according to the Bible, it was supposed to be one of the biggest cities around at the time. 
So it would take three days to walk around. Now, many, well, apparently many historical scholars, they scoffed for, for centuries, saying how could such a big city be lost to history, be lost to time? But it was actually then rediscovered, and it happened to be just as large as the Bible described it. What a coincidence. And then we have Jesus himself. He speaks about Jonah in Matthew 12. He speaks about it like it's a real historical event. Uh, he uses it as a metaphor of his own crucifixion and resurrection. Uh, he says, for as Jonah was uh, three days and three nights in the whale's belly, he does say whale, in the whale's belly, so shall the Son of Man be three days and three nights in the heart of the earth. And Jesus went on to say, the men of Nineveh shall rise in judgment with this generation and shall condemn it, because they repented at the preaching of Jonah, and behold, a greater than Jonah is here. So, just a bit of a, a bit of an overview of the book of Jonah. Now, the book of Jonah has been described as being very ironic, meaning it plays out in a way that's unexpected, like contrary to what people think or would think. And Jonah himself has been cast as this kind of anti-hero, uh, someone who plays a main part in the story but, but may lack the courage and integrity we would expect from a typical hero. So even when they do something that others might find morally correct or honourable, sometimes their reasons for doing that might not be so inspirational or selfless. So with all that in mind, we'll get stuck in. The book of Jonah starts in chapter 1, for those who have Bibles and devices, with a commission. And Jonah, or God, sorry, tells the prophet Jonah, the son of Amittai, he says, go to Nineveh and cry against it to announce judgment on it because God has seen how wicked this city is. So Jonah, he goes to the port of Joppa, one of the main ports in Israel, and he gets on a boat to Tarshish. Now if we pull up that map, we see that Nineveh is east, about 550 miles, and Tarshish is a long way west. So does Jonah just have a horrible sense of direction? <laughs> the Bible says no. The Bible tells us in verse 3 that Jonah is attempting to free a flee from the presence of the Lord. So immediately, you, you, when I'm reading this, I go, okay, why would Jonah want to go that far away from where God wants him to go? Why would he not just go to Nineveh? Well, one thing we know is that Nineveh was the capital of the Assyrian Empire, and they weren't exactly friendly. In fact, they were kind of terrorizing everybody around them. They were powerful, they were warlike, they were cruel. You see, they loved inflicting pain on people. These Assyrians, uh, they, would, they would capture prisoners, and um, so this is you know, generally defenseless, helpless people, and they would invent new ways to torture them. In fact, they were so proud of the, all the ways that they dreamt up to hurt people that they would paint pictures of this on their palace walls so that other Assyrian kings would know, oh yeah, you're, you're onto it. You figured out a new way how to hurt somebody. I read that and I'm like, that's, that's pretty messed up, right? And if this is the reason that Jonah doesn't want to go, I'm kind of with him at this point. I mean, these guys torture people for fun. And God wants Jonah to go there and, and call them out on it. He wants, he wants Jonah to go there and tell them how wicked they are. Surely, if any people, if anyone in the Bible deserves a bit of the old fire and brimstone treatment, it would be these people. 
So Nineveh's east. Jonah chooses to get on a boat going the furthest place west that an Israelite would know about, boards a ship to Tarshish. Uh, yeah, not quite. But Now, Tarshish is actually mentioned quite a few times in the Bible. And uh, one of the pictures we start to get about it is that it's rich and it's powerful. Uh, it's, it's thought to have an abundance of gold and silver mines. And in Chronicles 2.9, we read that Tarshish would bring gifts of gold and silver, ivory, apes, and peacocks to King Solomon on regular occasion. He had very interesting taste. It was a merchant city. It was powered by the strength of its ships, and ships that were supposedly so strong that the psalmist indicates that only God could bring them down. So the ship that Jonah boards was full of, unsurprisingly, sailors. And they were most likely merchants who have made their living trading goods all throughout the Mediterranean. Can we have that map up, please, if that's all right, guys? So as you can see, there's a lot of sea in between there. Uh, and they would, have, they would have most likely traded all around there. Greece, we've got Italy. We also know that these sailors were not Jewish. They were, they were pagans. So they worshipped all kinds of different gods. But Jonah, he doesn't appear to be uncomfortable with this or feel out of place. He promptly goes down to the bottom of the ship and he falls fast asleep. Now initially I'm reading this and I'm going, huh, why would a guy who's, who's on the run from God on a ship full of strangers headed to a foreign city that's a long way from home be so relaxed? In fact, even when a, a huge storm brews up, Jonah just keeps on powering down. And these sailors, these, these hardened men, who would have no doubt been very accustomed to rough seas, even they start to get afraid. And they quickly realize that this storm is like no other. And they do two things, what I can observe. First, they begin to frantically pray to their gods. And that's a pretty common response. So like, it seems most people are gonna offer up a prayer uh, in desperate situations, even if God necessarily isn't a priority in their lives. Um, I like this quote from Corrie ten Boom, who, if you don't know, she was a Holocaust survivor, she best-selling author, and she's credited with saying, is prayer your steering wheel or your spare tire? I thought you'd like that one, Jeremy. <laughs> so that's the first thing we observe these guys do, as they start praying frantically to all their gods. And secondly, these sailors, they start chucking all their cargo over the side to try and make the ship lighter. Now remember, this cargo was their livelihood, was how they made a living. But in the light of eternity, uh, when faced with certain death, it's one of the first things to go overboard. And it got me thinking, is, is there something like that in my life? Am I spending my time working hard for things that, that if given the option, I would abandon in a second for more time? But even with all the prayers to their gods and throwing the heavy cargo overboard, the storm keeps on raging, and the ship is still in grave danger. Now the shipmaster, uh, or the captain of the ship, he finds Jonah sleeping in the hull of the ship, and he's like, what are you doing? What's going on? Arise, call upon thy God, he says, hoping that, that whatever God Jonah served would have mercy on them and save them from this terrible storm. Now, the Bible doesn't really go into detail about Jonah's immediate response, but could I propose something? The very next verse, 
we see that things have gotten even more desperate. The sailors have resorted to casting lots. Uh, today it would be similar to like throwing a dice or flipping a coin to try and find out who's responsible for the evil that has caused the storm. So based on that, I would ascertain that Jonah didn't really do anything <laughs> about the request to play, pray to his God. He just stood there, right up until the moment where the lot falls on him. And all of a sudden, all eyes are on Jonah. And the sailors want answers. Who are you? Where have you come from? What do you do for a living? And he says this in verse 9 of Jonah 1. He says, I am an Hebrew, and I fear the Lord, the God of heaven, which has made the sea and the dry land. Now, I just want to park on that statement for a little bit and quickly talk about something that's called the fear of the Lord. The Bible has a lot to say about it. It's, people often describe it as a healthy respect of God, which I suppose, yep, that could fit into it, but I think it's more than that. You see, these sailors, they were afraid, very afraid, scared for their lives in the face of this divine storm. Mm. The Hebrew word used to describe their fear is yare, and it's a word that is used all throughout the Old Testament, and it's used in both fear and don't fear. So, for example, Psalm 23, though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will, thank you, Michal, I will yare no evil. Why? Because thou art with me, thy rod and thy staff, they comfort me. I just had to finish off that last part. <laughs> the Bible says that those that yare, those that fear God, they're wise, they have understanding, they keep God's commandments, they obey his voice, and they prolong their life. And Proverbs 15 verse 16 describes that it's better to be poor, to have little or nothing, and fear the Lord rather than have great treasures and the trouble that not fearing him brings. But in saying that, just as a closer, should we live in constant fear that God's going to do something bad to us? Well, no, because the Bible tells us about God's character. Maybe if God had the personality of Saddam Hussein or Joseph Kony, we could warrant some concern. But the, the God of, that we serve is loving, kind, merciful, just, powerful, yes, worthy of our reverence and respect, absolutely. Because if we find ourselves going against God's will, then we should fear the consequences. Because God has all the power to bring his will to pass. So, back to Jonah. When he said he feared the Lord, was that a truthful statement? Based on what we've just seen on fear? Not really, is it? <laughs> just as I said, those that yare, those that fear God, they're wise. Well, Jonah might have been wise. They have understanding. Yeah, he may be understood. They keep God's commandments. Ugh. They obey his voice. They prolong their life. Well, Jonah's not doing a great job of prolonging his life. None of what Jonah has displayed, certainly to me so far, reflect that he truly fears the Lord. In fact, I would say it kind of reflects the opposite. If Jonah truly feared God, then why would he risk disobeying him and running away? And Jonah's God is, according to Jonah, the God of the sea. So, yep, you try and run away on a ship. <laughs> You see, everything with Jonah is, is, is a little bit backwards. It's like it's upside down. God says goes east, so he goes west. When everyone else is afraid of this divine storm, he's as calm as a cucumber. And while everyone else is praying, I believe he stayed silent. Now sailors, 
they have this bit of a reputation these days, don't they? Um, they kind of live hard, play hard kind of men, tough and, and unflinching. But these pagan sailors, when they hear that Jonah's God is the God of Israel, the Bible says now they get really scared. And they beg Jonah to tell them what to do, to make the storm go away. And Jonah tells them, to make the storm go away, you've got to throw me overboard. And the storm will stop. Now these sailors, they've already thrown all their precious cargo overboard. You'd think that by the time these words were out of Jonah's mouth, they would be hoisting him straight overboard. I mean, who's he to them? He's just a stranger. He's, he's a weird foreign Jewish prophet. And he's currently causing them a lot of trouble. But this is the story of Jonah, where nothing is as it seems. Because it turns out these sailors, these hard, sea-weary men, they actually don't want to harm Jonah, even if it endangers himself. In fact, the Bible says that they try their hardest to row the boat back to safety, but to no avail. I, just, I read that and I found it strange that these pagan Gentiles seemed to care a lot more about the life of Jonah than he cared about theirs. Jonah had to be directly confronted before he told anyone that the reason for the storm was him. Would Jonah have just kept his mouth shut the whole time and let the whole ship sink and everyone on board die? In the end, these sailors, they do chuck Jonah overboard, but not before they pray to God, asking God to forgive them. And the Bible concludes in chapter 1, verse 17, Now the Lord had prepared a great fish to swallow up Jonah, and Jonah was in the belly of the fish three days and three nights. So what kind of message are we supposed to get from a disobedient prophet who tried to run away from God and get swallowed by a giant fish? Number one, the concept of being able to run away from God is kind of dumb. <laughs> the, the psalmist once said in Psalm 139, whether shall I go from my spirit or whether shall I flee from my presence? If I ascend up to heaven, Thou art there. If I make my bed in hell, behold, thou art there. If I take the wings of the morning and dwell in the uppermost parts of the sea, even there shall thy hand lead me and thy right hand shall hold me. If I say, surely the darkness shall cover me, even the night shall be light around me. Now that's, for me, comforting, right? Like to feel that God's actually with me wherever I go and especially in the times where I feel like he's far away. It's comforting when I feel like I'm um, obeying him, maybe not so comforting when I feel like I'm not. It also challenges the statement of God is not in this place, or God couldn't be working in that circumstance. Whoever's heard the term godless, it's actually there's a Netflix series on at the moment right now called Godless, and um, people might say, what a godless place, or they're such a godless people. Or some people say, God forsaken. What a God forsaken place. God doesn't forsake his people, even if they constantly let him down. And God doesn't forsake his creation, no matter how far they stray. Which leads me to another point. For me, the story of Jonah challenges my perceptions and expectations of people. See, as the story unfolds in the next couple of weeks, um, we'll see this concept expanded even more. Just in chapter 1, we see that the man, Jonah, held up as God's prophet. 
the one who said, I fear the Lord, the God of heaven, he actually acted in a way that displayed the exact opposite of that. And those pagan sailors, who you might be tempted to think far away from God, who you might be tempted to think are just chasing pleasures and riches, because that's what Tarshish was all about. They're actually the ones that displayed a true fear of God. At the end of, of chapter 1, it describes when Jonah hits the water and the storm ceases. And it says that those sailors, those mariners, they feared God even more. They offered sacrifices to him. They made vows to him. They'd witnessed the power of God working through the life of Jonah and recognized the God of Israel as the true and living God. Too bad for Jonah that that happened to be in chastisement and discipline as opposed to blessing. Occasionally, um, I go out with a group of guys and we um, hand out gospel tracts on Friday night in, in town. And I'll admit, you hand out a few tracts and you start to get an idea in your head built up, based arguably on some experience, of the kind of people that are going to take a tract and the kind of people that won't. Those that will smile and nod, and those that will tell you in very, very creative ways to get lost. <laughs> but the other day I had a, a long conversation with a teenager who, to look at him, you would think he didn't want anything to do with God. But he listened, he asked questions, and he accepted prayer at the end. It was one of those God moments where I left thinking, wow, God, you're working in the hearts of people that I would never expect. And I'll admit there's been times the other way where I've felt God prompt me to go and give a track to someone or start a conversation with someone and I let my human wisdom get in the way. I think, nah, they, they're not going to be interested. Or pe people like that, nah, they, they're not going to want to do anything to do with God. I'll be, I'll be wasting my time talking to them. But for me, the, the story of Jonah challenges that assumption. The Bible says that God isn't willing that any should perish. And thirdly, I believe this portion of the story of Jonah displays God's great love and mercy for his creation. His great love and mercy for people that on the outside you would think have completely rejected him. It displays his great patience in working alongside someone like Jonah, who's disobedient and a pretty horrible representative of a man of God. I actually don't believe that Jonah wanted to go to Nineveh at all because I, I think he couldn't stand the thought of God's mercy, his potential mercy towards these ruthless Assyrians. But perhaps more on that in the coming weeks. I think I always read the part where Jonah tells them to throw him overboard and, and I thought, wow, what a selfless act. You know, Jonah's finally kind of getting his act together. He's sacrificing himself for the good of the ship. <laughs> but as I read and, and follow the narrative, I'm more and more convinced Getting thrown overboard might have been Jonah's most selfish decision to date. I mean, what better way to avoid going to Nineveh? I know. I'll let that sink in. <laughs> Historically, there have actually been a great deal of parallels or similarities drawn between the prophet Jonah and the Lord Jesus Christ. Both were from Galilee. Both slept in storms. Both preached repentance. Jonah spent three days in a fish. Jesus spent three days in a tomb. But while a strong argument could be made that actually Jonah was willing to die to avoid saving his enemies, we know that Jesus gave up his life and died a horrible death to save his enemies. Now I realize that I have been quite harsh on Jonah. 
I read chapter one and to be honest, I see a man that made several foolish decisions, disregarded the safety of those around him and was a hypocrite. But all in all, he was just painfully human, like us, like me. He represented the nation of Israel at that time, constantly running from God, constantly disobeying him, and instead of being a light to the nations, like God was calling them to do, they ended up showing everybody what happens when you choose your own wisdom over God. You suffer the consequences. You reap what you sow, as a wise brother told me on Friday. But I was encouraged by this chapter. I was. Because it can be easy to look at places of darkness in this world and get discouraged. To buy into this idea that some places are more godless or faithless and that the world is just becoming more and more pagan. Everyone's going after their own preferred gods, fame or wealth or whatever it is. Even here, where we are, you could look around and you could choose to focus on a whole lot of stuff that's not that great. And I don't need to describe those things. You guys know what I'm talking about. Some people might even use the term God forsaken for a place like this. But as I read the story of Jonah, I'm, I'm reminded that places, uh, terms like godless and God forsaken just simply aren't true. God is at work everywhere, including and especially places where horrible things are happening. The Bible shows us time and time again that God does not forsake his people. No matter how evil and depraved the situation is, he wants all people to come to him and be saved. In fact, this church in particular is blessed with this location. And we've got a unique opportunity to co-mission with Jesus in a place that really needs him. Yeah? See, Jesus explained, I, I didn't come for the healthy, I came for the sick, to call sinners to repentance. If, and I'm thinking, if Jesus is going to be working anywhere, wouldn't it be here? <laughs> the question then really becomes, will we join him? In some cases, it might require us to let go of pre previous expectations and prejudices, to abandon preconceived ideas about the kind of people that will accept Jesus and embrace the gospel. If anything, Jonah's actually a stark reminder that sometimes God's own people are the ones that need a revelation of him the most. Unfortunately, I think a roadblock that God often faces is his own people. And let's pray that, that we don't have to be subjected to unnecessary storms and being swallowed by darkness before we obey his voice and go. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you for your mercy. Thank you for your patience, Lord. Thank you that you did come for the sick and those that need a saviour. And Lord, we acknowledge that's us. And just pray, Lord, that, that we would be quick to obey your voice, that we'd put aside the things in our life that are roadblocks to you, that if we're on a ship to Tarshish, Lord, that we'd turn the other way and go back, um, that you'd give us courage, boldness, that you'd help us see people as you see them. And we just ask, Lord, that you'd involve us, that you'd, that you'd use us, that we could join you in what you're already doing. And we ask this all in the name of Jesus. Amen. Thanks for listening to the Huntley Baptist Church podcast. We hope that it has been an encouragement to you. Please feel free to contact us at huntleybaptist at extra.co.nz or visit us at huntleybaptist.com.